Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Timothy. This will be our last recording on 1 Timothy, and we'll be looking at chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. And this is really like final exhortations to Timothy. And so in the previous section, Paul once again restated some of the problems with the false teachers in the church there in Ephesus and how one of the problems was this desire to get rich and that was leading people astray. And so now Paul comes back to give some final instructions to Timothy and really urge him to flee from those things, to focus on faithfulness to Jesus. But in the context of doing this, he also gives one final bit of instructions for Timothy as he addresses the church there in Ephesus. And so this is what Paul says to Timothy as he wraps up the letter. He says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. And so we get this this final call to Timothy to make sure he's living in a way that models real, genuine discipleship to Jesus. In contrast to the false teachers who aren't living in a healthy, godly sort of way, but instead have this sick craving, as Paul said in the previous paragraph. And Paul calls Timothy here, notice, a man of God, which could be a general title, but is often used in the Old Testament as a title for a spokesman on God's behalf. And that's probably the sense here because of Timothy's role as an extension of Paul's ministry, his role there in the church at Ephesus. And he calls Timothy to flee these things, the things meaning the things that he's just described in the previous paragraph, the things that characterize the false teachers, uh, the things that characterize their desire to get rich, and in contrast, flee those things, but pursue, and he lists off a handful of virtues, pursue righteousness, uh, that is right standing with God and right living towards people. And godliness, we've already described that as living a Godward life where you're embodying the true teaching about God and about Christ. Uh, faith in, in the sense of trusting God, but also loyalty to him. Love, where the mark of disciples is love, the self-sacrificial and self-giving commitment to the well-being of other people. Perseverance, that is endurance and staying the course. And gentleness, this ability to be considerate of others and to lay down your rights for the sake of others and to consider their uh, their needs and their best interests. So pursue those things, Timothy. Then he says in verse 12, fight the good fight. And we could easily hear that as if that's imagery of like warfare, but it's really not. The word translated fight actually derives from the athletic world and refers to the struggle to finish the race or to win the match. That's the idea. And so in this case, however, the contest isn't a a wrestling match or a boxing match or a race. It is a good struggle of the faith. So fight the good fight, right? Race the good race. Uh, Wrestle the good wrestling match of the faith. That's the idea. And then he follows that up with, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Like grasp hold of that. Live that out. Be focused on that. And for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, obviously, Timothy knew exactly what event Paul was referring to. But scholars today have debated, what is this 
time when Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But since it refers to Timothy being called to eternal life and making the good confession, it probably is referring to Timothy's formal confession of faith when he became a Christian and was baptized. And he did all that in the presence of many witnesses. Many people observed all of that. And so Paul is charging Timothy to faithfully live out that confession with perseverance, pressing on in the struggle. Then Paul continues to urge Timothy to faithfulness and to endurance in verse 13 by saying, I direct you, directly addressing Timothy, I direct you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Again, this is speaking of the seriousness of this. Like Paul is saying, I direct this to you, Timothy, before God, like under God and before God's face and in God's presence. And he describes God as the one who gives life to all things, that everything that has life derives their life from God himself. Uh, We don't have life in and of ourselves. God has it, and God gives it generously to any living thing. And so that's who God is and of Christ Jesus. And notice it's the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, that they stand together. And this implicitly links Jesus with God and makes them equal. Like Paul's theology includes the human Jesus as being on par with the God who gives life to all things. And notice that Paul also says Jesus himself made his own good confession before Pontius Pilate. And Paul is referring to what Jesus testified during his trial leading up to his crucifixion. And when you read the trial scenes of Jesus in the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus was silent until the question of his identity and his kingship became the focus. And that's when he spoke and he affirmed that he was indeed the Messiah, a king. And so the idea here is before God and before King Jesus, Jesus who himself made the good confession, acknowledging Jesus' kingship, the very same good confession that Timothy made when he acknowledged Jesus' kingship. And then he says this in verse 14, that you keep the commandments. So Paul urges Timothy before God and King Jesus to keep the commandment without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says keep the commandment, what does he have in mind? Well, the command he's probably specifically referring to is the only command in the immediate context, and that is the command to fight the good fight of faith. That's the one command in the the immediate context. But that call to action, to fight the good fight, actually refers to faithfully discharging his ministry. And so that's the idea, that you keep this command, that you fight the good fight of faith with perseverance to the end. That is, you carry out your ministry, Timothy, all the way to the end. You follow my instructions in this letter. There in Ephesus, you live out this calling uh, that you have been given, this command that you've been charged with, and you do so without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, until Jesus himself shall appear again, till he shall return once more. And notice the titles for Jesus, Lord and Christ. That is the Lord Jesus, who is the King. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. And notice then verse 15, this appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. In fact, based on what follows, the he that'll bring this about 
refers to God. He's the one. So God will bring about Jesus' second coming at the proper time. And with that, then, Paul breaks off his line of thought and launches into a doxology to God and about God. A doxology is this, this expression or exclamation of praise to God. And so Paul says in the rest of verse 15 and on into verse 16, he says, He who, that is God, who is the blessed and only sovereign. Sovereign means the ruler of all things, the one who's completely in charge. So God is the one who is blessed. He's the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality. Notice that, that God alone possesses immortality. Anybody else who gets in on immortality gets in because God shares it with them, but he possesses it. One of the ways I like to describe that is that God alone has the copyright on life. He owns it and he can give it to whomever he wants. And so immortality is this idea of life everlasting, life within himself, that God himself has life within himself. And he's the one who gives life to all things. He's the one who possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, that God, the eternal one, uh, dwells in such glory that is unapproachable. Uh, as God himself told Moses back in Exodus 34, no one can see him and live because of the, the overwhelming glory of his personhood and his presence, and thus whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so here is this beautiful doxology about God that Paul just uh, breaks off into at this point. And one of the things it uh, it shows us is really how Paul prayed and how Paul worshiped and how Paul praised God. We get a sense of that here as we listen in on Paul just speaking spontaneously in his praise to who God is and the kind of person that God is. And that in itself is instructive to us. And so to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Then at this point, one more exhortation to Timothy concerning the rich in the church is what follows. And so as he's giving these final instructions to Timothy, there's an encouragement or exhortation to Timothy for the rich. And this, again, seems to suggest that since it's come up multiple times in this letter, that riches was a part of, in some fashion, playing a role in the problems in the church in Ephesus. You have instructions for the overseers, the elders, about not loving money not wanting to get rich. We saw in the last paragraph how the false teachers do want to get rich. It's led them to all sorts of problems. And here we have instructions specifically to Timothy about the rich. So here's what Timothy is supposed to say to the rich in the congregation in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. They're wealthy. And we know from uh, uh, archaeological work in the city of Ephesus, some of some of the the wealth was great. In fact, they're actually currently restoring these, what they call houses on the slopes, and they're large palatial estates up on the slopes overlooking the city uh, with mosaic floors and many, many rooms and plazas inside the house. And so there were people in the church there in Ephesus who were from some of these wealthy families, wealthy homes. So instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, so that's one of the things they need to be instructed. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Don't think you're better than others just because you're wealthy. 
and uh, he says, and not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And so those are the two specific uh, things that they're supposed to avoid, uh, being conceited and fixing their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That is finding their identity, finding their future security on the uncertainty of riches, that riches is unpredictable and uncertain. So don't fix your hope on that. Rather, the last bit of verse 17, but on God, fix your hope on God, not on your wealth, because your wealth is unpredictable and uncertain, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So uh, those who are affluent, those who have much need to learn not to fix their hope on riches, but rather fix their hope on God. But notice how God is described. God is described as the one who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So all the good things that we acquire in life and bring us great pleasure and great joy, those are gifts from God. He supplies us and he supplies them for our enjoyment. There is an important balance uh, evidenced there then in verse 17, that riches should not be the basis of our identity and cause us to be conceited. They should not be the basis of our security uh, and, and thus the basis of our hope. They shouldn't be that. But good things are something to be enjoyed. They are good gifts of a good God for our pleasure and our enjoyment. And so that balance is really important. Don't find your hope or your identity in them, but feel free to enjoy those good things because they are gifts from God who richly supplies us with them. Now, Paul continues this discussion of the things Timothy's supposed to tell the rich or instruct the rich in. And in verse 18, he really answers the question, what does that look like? How will setting their hope on God rather than riches show up in their life? Here's what Paul says in verse 18. He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. And so fixing their hope on God and not on their wealth will will teach them and lead them to use their wealth for the benefit of other people. So they will do good, that is good deeds, be benevolent and generous. They're going to be rich in good works, helping others who are less fortunate. So they will be generous and ready to share. They will live their life and hold their wealth open-handedly, seeing how they can benefit others who have needs, how they can benefit the kingdom work of Jesus and support missions and ministry, right? Paul's own ministry was supported by the generosity of people in the churches that he had started. So instruct them to do that. And then he says, and here will be the outcome of that, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice that the way Paul has worded this is instructive that there is a different kind of riches and a different kind of treasure to be rich in good deeds, to take hold of a treasure of a good foundation, right? That there is a different kind of treasure by just sheer material wealth in this present world. And so by being generous with their their riches. And by doing good deeds with their money, they are storing up for themselves a different kind of treasure, a treasure that provides a solid foundation for the future, that is, for the world to come. Paul's teaching here is very much like the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said that we should 
and not store up treasure for ourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, but rather store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Uh, and so Paul is saying very much the same thing here, so that they may take hold of that which really is life indeed, that which really is truly life. And with that, Paul has wrapped up the letter of 1 Timothy, and all that remains is his sign-off with a specific encouragement for Timothy at the end. And so he says this to Timothy in verse 20. Timothy, protect what has been entrusted to you. Guard this ministry, this gift, this sacred calling that you've been given. That's the idea. Protect what has been entrusted to you. How are you supposed to do that? Well, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So avoid all of that false teaching, avoid all of that worthless time spent in and these, these controversial questions and idle chatter that's part of the false teaching going on there. Avoid all of that, which uh, is falsely called knowledge. And then he says, which some have professed and thereby, thereby gone astray from the faith. All of that just recalls some of the themes of the letter about the false teachers and some of the things that have led to the problems in the church. And he's telling Timothy, avoid that. Avoid that. Instead, as he just told him, pursue the truth. Pursue good doctrine. Pursue godliness. And then Paul signs off the letter with a final really well wish, almost prayer wish for Timothy in saying, grace be with you. And that's how the letter of 1 Timothy comes to an end. And even here in this final paragraph, there is much for us to reflect on. We could reflect on the importance of character in ministry service, such as Timothy and Paul's call to the character that he's supposed to have and be a model of genuine discipleship at the beginning of this paragraph. There's the important teaching here about a wealth and affluence and where our identity is to be found and how often wealth can lead to conceit. And we must instruct those who are wealthy to not be conceited, to not find their security in their wealth, but rather to be generous and giving their wealth away to be rich in good deeds. Much to reflect on with that as well. And so as we wrap up the letter of 1 Timothy here on the listener's commentary, uh, my hope and my prayer is that this letter has been a great challenge and encouragement to your own spiritual life, to your reflections on ministry and the church, and even some of these specific uh, instructions about wealth and all of that. All of this calling you and I to be models of uh, disciples who are focused on the world to come. Thanks for tuning in to the Listener's Commentary on 1 Timothy. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generosity of people just like you, people who are using their resources and their wealth to support the work of God through the Listener's Commentary. So thanks a ton for your kingdom vision and for your generous support. May God bless you for it. And you can always join the team of supporters if you would like to do so by going to thelistenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button up in the top. It'll redirect you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount, click a little box that says Make This a Monthly Donation, or you can make it a one-time donation as well. So thanks a ton for your support. May God lead you and bless you as you seek and serve Him.